Rural Broadband Today is a production of Pioneer Utility Resources. Broadband, we need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the issues and the people shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Andy Johns, and this program is produced by Pioneer Utility Resources. Please share this episode with your network and help us tell the rural broadband story. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Jordana Barton-Garcia. Jordana, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Andy. It's wonderful to be here. Great. Now, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about um, digital equity. We're going to talk about the digital economy, or lack thereof, um, in places like South Texas and the Mississippi Delta. But uh, first, I wanted to um, get into a little bit about uh, Jordana. So Jordana serves as the Senior Fellow with Connect Humanity and uh, the Principal at Barton Garcia Advisors. Uh, Her resume includes um, roles uh, as Senior Advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and Vice President of Community Investments at Methodist Healthcare Ministries. So um, very, very impressive resume and and you're doing great work at at every stop along the way, it seems like. Jordana, most of your stops um, in some way or another um, involve some form of focusing on um, equity for rural areas and particularly digital equity. So let, let's kind of start with that word. How do you how do you define digital equity? What does that mean? And, and why is it something that that you've committed a lot of time uh, in your life to working towards? Yeah, well, you know, equity is about fairness. It's about uh, giving, you know, providing opportunity more broadly in our society. And I, I come from uh, rural South Texas, uh, uh, Colonia uh, Benavides, uh, close to the border in Laredo. And so uh, it it's just part of, um, you know, what I believe, right? Uh, I, I grew up in a a school system, right, that didn't have very high expectations of the children and, um, and indeed, you know, didn't have uh, kind of the, the rigorous, you know, coursework of other schools. So I always had that sense of fairness and, and equity kind of ingrained in, in uh, me and, and the, the desire, right, to help uh, rural areas, low-income communities uh, to be able to, to have opportunities uh, and, and a more equitable you know, we'll never get to perfect equity, but to a more equitable, you know, uh, uh, opportunities in their life. Definitely. And I think that's that's what's a little bit different about this episode is most of the episodes that we record on rural broadband today, we're talking about how how fast broadband can be expanded and how how quickly it's, um, you know, different states and, and um, uh, different organizations are taking steps to, to grow it. But in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the areas that that have been left behind traditionally and without folks paying attention going forward, run the risk of being left behind again. Uh, one of the stats um, that I had seen on on your website is that even with all of the money coming in uh, for federal broadband funding uh, that's going through the states and, and all the different programs um, going on right now, um, you're you're thinking it's still you and your your group are thinking there's still about 30 percent of the folks who lack Internet access today may still be missing out um even after this money is is used up is that am i am i reading that right yeah you know the the head of um uh, the the uh, connect humanity 
you know, is citing uh, one of the statements of of the head of NTIA, uh, who said that, you know, even with the, you know, the billions of dollars of current funding under IIJA and other programs, uh, they're still not going to be able to cover, you know, 30% of, of people who are not connected today. And so, um, so we are looking at in, at Connect Humanity and, and uh, you know, uh, my work in general, right, is to, you know, how do we have long-term uh, solutions, right? Not not short-term fixes, but long-term solutions where we really invest in communities. And that's why digital equity is so important. So digital equity um, is the condition in which all individuals and communities have information technology needed for full participation in our society, our democracy, and as you said, the digital economy. Whether we you know, like it or not, or know it or not, you know, we are deep into the digital economy. You know, the the fourth industrial revolution. You know, you could, people kind of consider about you know 2018 the transition, and then of course COVID pushed us ten years into the digital economy, right? Uh, in uh, people needing to adapt in all the ways that we did with remote learning and and um, and uh, telehealth and so forth, right? Uh, there was something like uh, I just quoted it in. Uh, article that I wrote, um, you know, 38% increase in telehealth uh, in the during the pandemic. And so very, you know, uh, we are deep into the digital economy. So to, to have, you know, the ability to participate in the economy, uh, and, and, uh, you know, from from, you know, the basics, uh, access and skills that you need to, you know, being able to climb up the ladder and, and economic opportunities um, is is all dependent on on uh, digital equity and having the digital uh, background and skills and access that that um, you know that that affluent places have right uh, and so um, and and the reason we talk about equity rather than equality right it's about fairness it's about uh, we have systemic issues uh, that prevent some people from being connected, right, from having a high-speed internet service at affordable prices uh, and, and you know, the knowledge and skills, as you said, and the tools uh, to, uh, you know, use the internet and, and uh, the digital skills broadly, right? So, um, so uh, it's, it's really, it, the stakes are so high right now, right, because uh, you need it for every area of, of life, right? From having uh, an equitable opportunities in education, job opportunities, uh, the ability to move up in one's job, uh, you know, access to financial services, uh, uh, and to to be able to start a business, right? We know, you know, if we didn't know before, we know from the pandemic that as a business, you had to be able to be online and, um, and be able to, uh, uh, you know, transition to to e-commerce, and and of course, many businesses now are based on IP protocol. Uh, we have, you know, we have a very huge transformation in business, and then of course, manufacturing is more and more automated, right? So it requires more and more digital skills, uh, and like I said, retail, uh, you know, has transitioned to e-commerce, uh, and so. Um, you know, the big, you know, creators of jobs in our economy, it's all changed, right? It used to be retail and manufacturing. 
Uh, that's how people could enter the middle class, right? And then their kids mm-hmm. would go to college and you'd have that uh, upward mobility, opportunity for upward mobility. Uh, but all that has changed in the job market. And now healthcare is the biggest creator of jobs in our economy. And mm-hmm. and think about it, right? At the same time that we have closure of rural hospitals, uh, and, and, and you mentioned South Texas, right, which is where I'm from uh, and, and where I, I do a lot of work, right, is... Uh, and we have one of the greatest digital divides in the country. Um, the uh, you know we have the highest cost of healthcare. We have the lowest the 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 worst health outcomes. And uh, along the Texas Mexico border, it's a persistent poverty region. We have a dearth of providers, right? Like uh, specialists and and primary care physicians and physician assistants and mental health providers. And so, and those are all areas that telehealth uh, has been proven to be very effective at, right? So, so just for the productivity of that industry, right? That's now the biggest creator of jobs in our economy. Uh, we need to have broadband connectivity for people, right? Because telehealth is not just connecting hospital systems and clinics; it's connecting the very people that they're trying to reach, right? Uh, for you know what what the FCC calls you know connected care, right? So that right. For, you know all the things that that we need it for, and so the promise. Well, and I, I think that's a that's a point. Let, let me just kind of underscore that point that that you were making before you continue. That I think it's important to for folks to realize that, that what you said the cost of um, of delivering healthcare is the highest in some of these areas with the the worst health outcomes. So clearly, the people who need it the most. But those are some of the folks also having the toughest time getting access uh, to telehealth. The people that would benefit most, that could benefit the most from telehealth are some of the ones having the most trouble um, getting access to it. I just wanted to underscore that point. That is so true, right? It's a double trouble and Mm -hmm. and a deficit for our our economy, for our people, right? Because, uh, you know, we care right about the health of the people, but also it, it matters how healthy they are to the economy, plus the productivity of the industry, right? That is the biggest creator of jobs. And in fact, in the border, it's the, of the top, you know, the Federal Reserve has shown uh, in its Heart of Texas report that healthcare is one of the top two industries, right, uh, in the on the border region. So, so it's important for people and the quality of life. Uh, and access to care is in rural areas critical, right? Because of the closure of rural hospitals and and the need to kind of rethink, right? How we uh, provide rural care. It can we have new models coming up, right? Where you can have a, a clinic, right? Where people go, but but the the specialist or you know could could come in through video conferencing, right? Where you ha- you generally you have a primary care or you have a a, a a mid-level provider, at least right there, or, you know, in some cases, a social worker, if it's for mental and behavioral health, but you have somebody there at the site, right? And, and then you can, you can video conference in and other, other, in other methods, right, of telehealth. So, so that's what we're needing to do, right? Reinvent and rethink uh, the way we provide care and, and, uh, and it's vital to uh, the vibrancy of rural communities, right? We have this gorgeous, amazing landscape in in this country, right? In this rich human capital in rural areas and, and, you know, underserved areas. Uh, You know, some of the most amazing innovations come from those areas, like on the border. 
in uh, and ha- and affordable housing in different areas. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're losing, we're not investing properly in that. And we're not taking full advantage of uh, all of that uh, human capital. And and that this that's what broadband uh, offers, right? Is that you you can um, you can work you know from rural areas and and maybe have a job in a in a you know city, uh, and you can build businesses in rural areas. And because uh, geography is not as uh, necessary anymore for reaching a customer base, right? When you have when you have uh, broadband and and the internet, so so that you you create many more opportunities, right? You want to you want to create as many opportunities for entry into the middle class and beyond as you can. And that's what we have failed to do. That's why we have these extremes in income and wealth inequality in our country, and this job polarization, right? Uh, and and so and we know from all the statistics that you know this God this was before the the uh, pandemic, eighty five percent of middle skills jobs, those not requiring a college degree but offering opportunity for upward mobility, um, the you know, 85% of those jobs require digital skills. So, and we know from studies that, uh, for example, children are more likely, you know, uh, to, if they have high-speed internet at home, they're more likely to do well in school, to uh, go into STEM careers and all of that. uh, uh, You know, so... So that's why it's so important and 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 sure. uh, vital to people and to our economy, you know, the health of our economy and our middle class. Yeah. Now you used a term there that that I was not familiar with. I think you I think you kind of unpacked a little bit there, but job polarization. So um, explain explain what you mean when you when you talk about job polarization. That has to do with the the income inequality you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I'm kind of not looking at, at, at the details around that, but but um, the the uh, growth, you know, the the share of the income, you know, mm-hmm. uh, now is going to the very very top uh, of our of our job, you know, right, uh, labor market, right, and and um, and when you have a, a shrinking middle class, and Pew just, you know, last year released kind of the latest data, where where our, our middle class is is clearly you know shrinking, um, so that has a lot to do with jobs, right? So so um, now there are, there are, there are there are low level jobs, right? Uh, and then there are a lot of high level jobs, but the middle jobs, right? Nice. Those are all changing, uh, so. Um, we're not preparing people well. So, so, so you have that mismatch, right? Uh, and, and that is, that leads to income and wealth inequality. Um, so. Got it. Now, a couple of other things, uh, to unpack. Um, when I looked at the, the, um, connect humanity page, um, it's, it says that that your work um, helps organize, organizations and communities achieve full participation in the digital economy. And I like that phrasing. What does that what does that look like? What does it look like when a community achieves full participation in the digital economy? Um, yeah, well, I think that's that creates, you know, you know, I'll say, you know, the first part of it. Right. And that is. Um, in order to attract job industry and jobs to a region, now 
you know, one the one of the main things they're looking for is high speed internet, right? And you can see it in the huge companies like Amazon, right? They they, they state it right out for a, a city for them to come to a city, they have to have high speed internet. People with digital skills, you know, what you know, they have their list, right? Mm-hmm. And likewise, in any business now, right? And uh, and I had to learn that the hard way, you know. I was I was a community development banker. Um, in in a big part of my career, right, trying to invest in low income areas and work with community based organizations to do so, and um, I, we wanted to attract industry to the the border region, right, to create jobs and vibrant economy. And what I didn't realize is that without broadband infrastructure, we would never be able to do that. Mm. Uh, we have you know old legacy copper infrastructure. We have and and you know people may be still able and and the old you know, legacy uh, cable systems, uh, network design uh, that might provide DSL, you know, 25.3, but they're not sufficient for businesses, right? And right. certainly not for homes either, residents either now. But but um, it, there's an underinvestment in the, the fiber-based infrastructure, right, that is needed for industry and commerce. Uh, and indeed, so, so there's that, right, the ability to have attract jobs. And not only that, in, in rural South Texas, we always talk about the brain drain, right? In, or, in order for our kids to make a life, right, go to school, make a life, they have to go away. And sometimes they stay away their whole life. Like I interviewed a, a young woman from a colonia in South in Las Milpas in, in South Texas, which is now part of FAR, Texas. And uh, she, you know, went to she went to community college, got her uh, engineering degree, and then she was uh, she went to Stanford and she got a scholarship to go to Stanford. She got, you wow. know, engineering and design, and she started a, a, a telehealth company uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, and, and very successful. You know, she got in the thirty under thirty of Forbes and all kinds of really great distinctions, wow. and yeah. it's doing great. Uh, she could have had that business in South Texas, but there's not the infrastructure there to support it, right? I mean, I'm not saying, right. saying what she would have done, but we didn't. Sure. Young people growing up there don't, don't even have that option to build their business in, you know, in the in that region. We're trying to change all of that, of course. And in fact, Far, uh, where she is from, is now a, a, a broadband provider and, and partnering with incredible co-ops and other. Uh, you know, to, to serve everybody in the region, uh, including outstanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask a question that, that, that we definitely could jump off the deep end and spend three or four hours unpacking. But when, when we're talking about the, the areas that, as you said, are underfunded, um, when it comes to infrastructure, the places that have, um, you know, some of the same challenges, whether it's health outcomes, educational opportunities, um, you know, the, the ability to start a business, um, a lot of the, when we look at the country, a lot of the the places, um, the same places keep coming up, whether it's whatever the stats are, obviously it's all connected, but you know, you talk about the, the South Texas area, you've talked about kind of the Rio Grande Valley, uh, the Mississippi Delta, the mountains of East Kentucky, some of the tribal areas out in, um, you know, Arizona and New Mexico, it's a lot of the same places that keep coming up on those lists. Um, and, you know, not to paint with too broad of a brush, but are there some things that, that you have seen? I know you've done some work in the Mississippi Delta as well. Um, are there some some um, common threads or, or uh, are, are each of those areas kind of facing 
completely their own challenges or are there some similarities that that reasons why um each of those areas always winds up on the same list and and we work with some folks in east kentucky that are doing great work to bring networks uh you know broadband networks to um to to that area same with new mexico and and everywhere else i'm not not trying to pick on those areas but you, you see them come up a lot and i'm wondering if in your work you've you've found some things that um you know the reasons why um that I, underinvestment uh, can, has happened and, and could continue unless more folks uh, listen to to what you're, you're saying. Yeah, no, I uh, I do uh, see a lot of similarities. And in fact, you know, throughout my career in community, the field of community development in general, I've worked in these areas. And what you did was you listed the four persistent poverty regions of our country, right? That is uh, places where uh, 20% or more of the population has been under the poverty line uh, for the last three decades. So you hmm. said you said it, right? Central Appalachia, Mississippi Delta, Texas, Mexico border and uh, tribal lands, right? And, um, and so because the digital divide impacts low income people, and that's where we get to the equity part, right? Of what we're talking about, which is we have systemic barriers, right? To everybody having access to broadband. And that is that in our country, uh, the way policy has been made uh, in general, right? We, uh, is that if that companies will go first, right? Especially the big national telecom providers, right? They'll go where they can maximize profits, right? They have to answer to their shareholders and that is their, their fiduciary duty. So they're going to go to the affluent neighborhoods, right? So low-income people are are uh, disproportionately, you know, on the wrong side of the digital divide. Uh, people of color, uh, because we have such a there's a, there's a link between uh, uh, in, uh, income and, and wealth and and um, and uh, BIPOC uh, or you know communities of color sure. and uh, historical right. Uh, uh, laws and policies that have uh, created persistent poverty, which we might not have time to go into now, but, right. but certainly <laughs> like, systemically, right, the way we've made policy and law has created that situation. Uh, because not, we, you know, it's, this is, uh, internet is not regulated, or it's not a regulated industry. So, um, so companies tend to go where they can make the maximum profit. Now we have the legacy telephone co-ops and the electric co-ops and the that have, are now provide many of them now providing internet and and small ISPs and regional ISPs very different for them I, I've interviewed a lot of them and and uh, seen the work right the impact of their work they're they they have a different bottom line right they're they're trying to uh you know have a, a, a you know uh, a more reasonable rate of return on investment and and they're part of their communities right so uh, actually Christopher Ali the, the the you know the the writer who writes about this subject in in mm -hmm. farm fresh broadband that's it <laughs> and yep. and so so um he you know he talks about this right and and this is mm -hmm. one of my primary training right in community development is as you invest in the local communities so so not only is it important to uh, you know, have brought you know high speed broadband, but think about our the digital economy, right? We want a diversity of uh, companies and and communities, right? To to own the the infrastructure 
to own the assets of the digital economy, right? Because that also is what creates wealth and assets in communities. And we have those uh, because of our awesome, you know, history of, you know, electrification of our country and telephone, you know, getting telephone to all where it was regulated, right? So everybody had to be covered, right? So they know how to cover these places. They have access to the rights of way They, you know, they have a lot of the assets, you know, and now we just need to expand that and, and invest in, in those rural uh, companies, right? Because they're, 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 their primary goal is not to necessarily to maximize profits. They're going to do well and do good, right? And they're part of their communities. That's what I have found. They're they're motivated by different things, right? And and uh, and they 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 want people connected. And that's why we're seeing, right? They're providing fiber-based networks. And you know, when when uh, so Christopher Ali talks about. Um, uh, the politics of good enough, right? And so mm. uh, that it's, that's a very important concept because, and I've been you know, told directly to my face uh, in a congressional hearing, you know, hey, you know, y'all might not get fiber, but, you know, you know, you'll get something and, and, you know, you should be happy with that basically, right? That's the message. Um, well, actually we have companies that know how to serve and know how to bring what you should be shooting for is the best possible, right? For rural areas and low income, they don't need less than other, but, and, and we want to be reasonable, right? We, you know, because of geography, all the things you have to consider, but guess what? We know how to do it. And guess what? We have community development in this country too. So it's not just federal grants, but we have um, the, the community reinvestment act, which is about attracting uh, investment into uh, low-income and underserved, you know, rural areas and communities, and together we have all the tools we need to finance broadband networks and bring what people need, no, you know, no less than what they need. And so this, the shooting for the minimum is 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 a little disturbing, right? Because it's kind of saying like the politics of good enough. Well, actually, it's not good enough because guess what? The world is moving so fast, and if we don't invest now in the kind of networks that people actually need, we're just gonna be creating the next digital divide. And guess what? You know, this concept of 5G, the 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 the, the actual um, uh, standard 5G, right? That, that uh, creates the internet of things, right? That makes mm -hmm. that possible. And we talk about smart cities, smart rural, and, you know, uh, t uh, uh, precision farming and, and all of that. Um, that all is going to depend on equity at the very base of did we invest properly in the the infrastructure that we need actually need in this country for that right so uh then big data and then artificial intelligence all of that is built on each other right 5g right. is going to create even expand big data even more right and uh so all of that matters right and in in the economy and in equity in the economy so if we don't get it right right about now um then it's going to be it's going to be harder and harder we're not going to have equity at, at in artificial intelligence and the other the other areas and and we know when people are included and people are you know have digital skills you know when we look at this very holistically and and, do, and create programs that do that um then we have people right that can be at the table and make decisions that we're going to be happy and you know the digital divide is just the first ethical, you know, or not, maybe not the first, but it's one of the first ethical issues of technology, technological advancement. 
And if we if we can get this right and deal with the complexities right of of where we are in this country on this issue, then we can also have conversations because more people will be at the table, right? Rural areas, people of color will be at the table making algorithms, right? Are they fair? Mm -hmm. Oh, should we use them until they are fair? You know, you know, it's all based on right now we talk about algorithmic bias right so mm -hmm. it's all about having uh, people from diverse backgrounds at the table to be able to create the knowledge and the the assets of the digital economy and to make those policy decisions so yeah so when when we're creating like i'm, I'm working on the regional plan for south texas and uh, going to be working with mississippi delta as well uh, and we're building in the, you know, the digital equity programs, right, that are part of IAJA and working with the local ISPs, the co-ops and others, uh, you know, they want to, they want to uh, serve as apprenticeships and internships, paid internships, right, to build the networks, to run the help desk and get IT training and certification. I, we're also including law and policy, right? So these young people from rural areas or underserved areas, they're going to be the policymakers, right? They're going to need to understand. So I, I created a whole, you know, curriculum uh, to to help uh, uh, young people know how we got here, right? There's so many, mm. there's so many uh, terms, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, you know, like access and uh, technology neutral <laughs> and things like that, right? They get into policy, but when you really analyze them, oh, that might not be a good policy. <laughs> you know, it might be a it might be thinking too small or scarcity minded, right? So sure. how do we have young people really understand these, you know, tele, you know, from, you know, all the major, you know, laws that have impacted um, and we're, of course, we're still in the, the laws created during the telephone era, <laughs> pretty much. Right. Uh, so it, we yeah. need to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned several of the things there and there was so much, so much good stuff in what you just, um, just shared. I was actually looking uh, I believe we had interviewed Christopher Ali in one of our earlier episodes. So I was, I, we'll, we'll try to put the notes to that in the the show notes of the uh, this episode. There's so much good stuff, and you got into where I was headed next, which is, you know, we know the problem. Um, you know, folks like yourself are doing a great job of of highlighting um, the the problems there, and I think folks are are starting to to catch on, starting to get it. What what has to happen next? And and you talked there about kind of training that next generation. Um, you talked about raising awareness. You've talked about um, uh, the policy makers not shooting. Uh, I like the way you said it, shooting for for the minimum. Um, you know, aiming the goals higher. Um, there's also some funding mechanisms that I know that you're you're working with as well. What are some of the things that as we're going forward to get this right? Um, that that from where you're sitting, we need to make sure happen. Um. So. You know, there there's there are going to be some some major challenges like with IAJA, you know, the the FCC maps came out. And according to the maps, um, if you so they're they're purported to be able to tell us about the digital divide. Right. Uh, you would think you would you you would see that all of South Texas is completely 100 percent covered. And Texas yeah. is is uh, almost 98. What is it? 98 percent covered. And so that um, that um, kind of flawed information uh, 
is 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 one of the challenges, right? So how does a poverty region, if the Mississippi Delta and and the border region, for example, which I've looked at all the data there, uh, is is completely uh, uh, you know covered or uh, has access uh, to the internet uh, and is considered served, then they, they they might not be able to get the the funding right because the funding is determined you know it first goes to the unserved and then to, to the underserved and so forth. So what what and and the problem is that uh, the purpose of the FCC maps is to show quote access right. And when I lay people or you know others you know think about access, they think oh that you you have it you know that that not that you can be served, but that you are served, right? Right. Uh, and so it's it's not about broadband subscriptions, how many in that community have broadband subscriptions and actually have service, right? Uh, and what kind of you know service. Uh, but it's it's just that that they can be served within 10 days. And that was the problem with the FCC 477 data, right? Mm -hmm. So I always had to use the American community, the US Census American Community Survey, right? It's so robust and you could see how many people had subscriptions, right? Actually had fixed internet in the home. Right. And uh, all the reasons why, you know, that's important, right? In, in talk, if you're talking about the digital divide. Now, FCC and, you know, other entities might need the information that they produce, right? But it just doesn't tell you about the digital divide. In Mississippi Delta and in uh, if you know in in the Texas Mexico border region, you yeah. know we already we've already documented Microsoft you know showed uh, by and and in, in I'm a researcher right I was a researcher with the Federal Reserve and I have that background and you you know you have to triangulate when you're doing research you have to use research from different sources right mm -hmm. and then to try to tell the complex picture right uh, but if you just tell a piece of the picture like you have a whole elephant and you're just describing the tail <laughs> well the FCC current maps describe the tail of the elephant mm -hmm. and it, this says nothing about the about whether people actually have it what it would cost for that particular person to get it right the line extension or the you know the cost of service and the U.S. has some of the highest cost of service uh, because and Thomas Philippon uh, uh, really uh, the the Economist uh, has a publication um, that um, that really demonstrates right how how we don't have competition right so so you're going to have you you end up with with high you know for for the U S we have some of the highest cost uh, almost double you know the other developed countries like Germany and so um, so we're dealing with with a complex problem, right? Maps that are supposed to determine billions of dollars, uh, yet that show that the at least two that I've looked at, two persistent poverty regions, are completely, you know, uh, served, uh, and we know that that's not true from our, our best scholars and and our the best you know research of the Federal Reserve and the the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and uh, John Sallet with with uh, that did some very important work with the Benton Foundation. So so we're having to suspend what we know and and uh, you know make sense right of these maps and and it's too it's too much pressure on lay people to understand 
what that means, that, mm-hmm. that access and being served does not mean the same thing to the industry or the FCC as it does to regular people, right? Regular people right. just want to know, do can I get great, great service that I need for you know school, for all the things I need to do? So even even UTRGV, they did a, a, a you know study, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Finally, we have a medical school too on the border, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they they inter- they uh, surveyed their students during the pandemic because they wanted to see how well they were going to be able to transition to remote learning, and forty five percent of those students didn't have an internet connection at home. That's wow. That's just, you know, and we have many surveys now, right? I've been working with some of these communities on the border. They have community surveys. They have actual evidence, right? Actual, you know, uh, yet these FCC maps, totally out of context, totally. And and I, I would propose, you know, a different title for the FCC maps. You know, it it can't be, we can't pretend that they talk about the digital divide because they're talking about, uh, something else. It's ISP. Uh, I, I gave it a new name. Incumbent ISP reports on minimum speed and infrastructure availability, regardless of infra- uh, type of infrastructure, quality of connection, actual s- subscriptions, or cost of service. <laughs> and you know how... Uh, that's that's going to be quite an acronym there. <laughs> nobody will title it that, right? But that, <laughs> right. Is, the, that is the accurate title, right? Yeah. But it, But... It's it's going to be deciding you know billions of dollars and persistent poverty regions are the con- Congress said you know make sure you you serve in this IAJA persistent poverty regions uh, and uh, colonias like of South Texas are also you know designated places um, so so we're going to have to have another another uh, uh, strategy <laughs> right. Uh, and Congress also said that the FCC would create the maps that would determine funding. So there's a contradiction there, right? Uh, right. So, so that's those are some of the complexities that we have to deal with as a society, and um, come to. So, so at the same time that I get kind of frustrated, right? Because I'm like, okay, why don't we just tell people what this really says, what this really is? Well, we are actually we're all working together, mm-hmm. and now elected officials from small towns and you know are having to understand what what these terms mean what you know and they're going to be able to make better policy decisions so we're having one of the biggest civic participation exercises in our country that is focusing on rural and and uh underserved places uh mm-hmm. at least in what we know you know we need to be serving right to create more equity Yet it's not it's not easy, right? Because there's a lot of teaching and a lot of um, uh, powerful structures in place that that make it hard uh, to to for it to be easy. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, and that that's really important perspective. And I really am glad that you that you 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 framed it that way. I, I like that a lot. I do two final uh, questions for you. One of the things that I've heard a little bit of concern from folks about, and we've seen it on the state level. Um, I know we we saw it here in Tennessee on on some on the state level a little bit uh, a few years ago, is that there's at times there's the attitude that um, you know, okay, here's you know, rural broadband advocates. Here is here is money that we're throwing at that problem, and then um, it should be done, right? I know in Tennessee, the first round of broadband grants was ten million dollars, and 
there was kind of the attitude for at least a little while, like, you know, the state legislature, like, okay, we, we did that. We did rural broadband. Now let's move on to the next thing. It's like, you know, no, 10, $10 million is, uh, is, is not, not enough to, to do it. And there's still a lot of people without, are you concerned at all that after this big wave of, of federal funding, um, comes through and, you know, we got the bead grants coming out later this year. Um, it's going to be tougher for it, whether it is 30% or whatever the folks who are, who may be left behind, even after this wave, it's going to be even tougher, um, to find the funding sources. Or do you think that's a faucet that is open and is going to continue to, um, continue to pour for a little while? So, so I do, uh, everything about the way the rules have been written and, um, uh, the the amount you know the the rules about who is going to get the funding and what we've seen so far about who is being awarded the grants which you know uh, many have gone to big telecom uh, industry right and right. and and they have some of them like in the um, I don't know if you followed the East Carroll Louisiana kind of story and connected connect humanity worked with East Carroll um, where the, the big cable company, right. Uh, protested their, their grant, right. To mm-hmm. work with another uh, internet builder to, to bring connectivity to that region because they had, they weren't served. They had surveys, they, you know, uh, and, and, and then <laughs> the, the, uh, an email that he sent was, accidentally got out right so the the news covered that you know them saying that one of their biggest you know uh, uh, challenges and efforts is going to be in uh you know um, getting rid you know protesting the any kind of grants that might go to smaller providers or or our local communities or smaller providers mm-hmm. or or any other you know any competition that they're like defense yeah. yeah defense so so it's not looking good and and then you see the maps right that came out and then people were given 35 days to to challenge the, the official challenge with three national holidays in between i mean right. it's all it's almost absurd if you really think about it uh mm-hmm. it's it, you know it's it's really are we supposed to just jump and jump and jump and you know uh well you know those things don't look Good, right? And and then this scarcity mindset where they're talking about minimums when, my God, rural co-ops, uh, regional ISPs, and, you know, certainly municipal ISPs, and we have a few, you know, uh, are, are proving that they're building fiber networks. They know how to do it. They know how to make it work. They have been doing that. They just need support, right? And, and they're, you know, some of them are, you know, people of color, locally owned, you know, and other... And then the way we're also not supporting entrepreneurship in, in ISPs, you know, with this new funding, because, you know, newer companies aren't aren't the ones that they're shooting for to give the grants to. Um, we're losing out, right, on an opportunity to really serve at, at, the, uh, at the speeds and capacity that communities need, right? And, and what you want to shoot for, like I said before, is, is uh, the best you can. Right now, mm-hmm. we need to shoot for not minimums. But for the best that we can, right? Who, where are the companies? So if, and, and then the rule that says no overbuilding, right? Well, that's a best practice. It makes sense, right? To people, it seems fair. You don't want to build a fiber network over a fiber network. But guess what? You do want to build a fiber network over a copper 
or legacy uh, cable sure. network, right? Uh, however, that's a, a company can protest and say, no, you can't, you can't do that. And and this concept of technology neutral, which is is not true. Technology is not neutral, right? And and when we say fiber-based networks, you know, it can be fiber to the home, certainly. And and some rural co-ops are just doing that because they, they know it's the right thing to do and they know how to do it. But yeah. but five, even you know, fiber 90 uh wireless is 99% wired, right? So if you have fiber as close as possible, say geography right. doesn't allow you, right? Then the fixed internet, the fixed wireless is going to be much more effective, yeah, reliable and, and speed and capacity. And so, so that's what these terms are, are terms of the industry, right? Like no overbuilding just means no competition. <laughs> you know, it sounds it sounds so fair and right and, and uh, technology neutral. That sounds very fair and as well, right? Because hey, you should be able to build what you can and what you, you know. Oh no no no! But it, it's the way we discriminate against communities by not investing in high-speed broadband in those communities or in the upgrades that are necessary. Right? That's how we got to the digital divide. So if, if we're building that into our policy and not employing best practices in community development and the broadband industry, and so we're 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 putting into law and policy things that we know are uh, discriminatory or deficit thinking or you know scarcity uh, thinking then we're limiting our our possibilities so yes i see a big danger now you have uh people like christopher ali uh, john sallet who wrote for the binton uh, foundation uh, goodness, I I can't even put myself in in their company, but myself, you know, I'm not I'm not giving up, and others, right, who are who are trying to um, write about uh, these issues, teach constantly, uh, and and uh, bring these ideas to people's attention, right? Because otherwise, we will shoot ourselves in the foot, and you know, we're not going to get the impact, and and also the way we make policy. We tend to make it in um, very, very uh, again scarcity kind of thinking, where you think that's all. Like what what we can do in community development with, say, with a, a five million dollar federal grant, you can leverage that and create twenty five million with the tools we have in community developments to finance broadband networks. And back in twenty sixteen, I worked, uh, you know, with the interagency group that regulates banks under the CRA, right, to, to include broadband and digital inclusion as part of CRA. So it's an area, we have new market tax credits, we have uh, a different kinds of uh, business, you know, loans, very low interest patient capital. We have, uh, you know, supporting digital workforce development, you know, all of that we built into the law of the Community Reinvestment Act. So we have more tools than we're pretending we have at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, and, yeah. and we need to think much bigger, right, about what rural people and low-income pe people can have. And if we really, if we truly understood the human capital that we're we're underinvesting in and that we're not unleashing, you know, their brilliance in the world. True. And we wouldn't we wouldn't do this. Nobody. I don't care what party or you know, you would not do that. We we need to unleash all of our 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 great uh, resources and people and ideas and entrepreneurial ideas 
into our economy and into the world, right, to create solutions to some of our greatest problems. And, uh, and I, I do, I do, long story short, I, I think it is a danger, but you have very committed uh, people, you have amazing uh, local regional ISPs, co-ops, you know, we have this whole history in our country, uh, and people who, who are so committed, and they're, you know, many of them social enterprises, you know, they, they, they're doing well and doing good. And, and I think we have that model too very strongly in our country. We have nonprofits that work with uh, banks and others, right, to bring investment into low-income community. We have a whole, we have a whole toolbox. But when, but if you don't embed that into the the way a program is uh, is implemented, you know, like you could give extra points for somebody who brings in 10 million with your 10 million, you know, the federal federal grant of 10 million, right? Sure. And, and and really value that, right? Value that because that that's the truth of our economy. The way we get to equity in a in a capitalist society, right, is you build in these mechanisms, right, to create mm-hmm. equity. And people in the area of community development are working on this every day. So why not unleash, you know, not have these compartments and um, how do you say silos, right? Mm-hmm. This is all part of our economy, right? That's how that's how we've created uh, the mo- you know this great um, this great uh, you know the United States of America, right? It's because we're a capitalist society that can be you know uh, you know um, limiting. And as far as uh, shared equity, uh, but we also have at the same time working side by side community development, you know, and community development finance, finance for good. And mm-hmm. together we can be very, very, uh, we can create a strong economy where we have shared equity and not extremes in income and wealth inequality. So the, I, you got into a, a little bit of what I was going to ask you here just in closing, but. Um to kind of end on a high note, um, you had, you had good momentum going there. Um, uh, but we, we've talked about a lot of the challenges and, uh, I know we've run a little bit long and I really appreciate, um, your time and the time of the folks listening. Um, we've, we've talked about obstacles. We've talked about the challenges, you know, this is complicated work. This is as soon as you think you've got something figured out, then the, the rules change and there's, there's something else with somebody with your experience, you could be doing a lot of different things. Why is it, and you mentioned some of the folks that that keep advocating, why is it that 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 you keep fighting, that you keep that you keep moving forward on this, that you keep bringing it up? Um, what is it that that keeps keeps you going looking at such a complicated problem, knowing that it's going to be you know a, a probably an entire generation of networks being built now um, is a big problem, and it's a big thing to solve. What is it that keeps you you plugging away and and working on it every day? Um, I, I think that, uh, the stakes are really very high and I think Mm. I truly believe that, that how well we do right now with IAJA, right. And the, the funding, the federal commitment, right. And, and, and dealing with this as, as a, uh, very important ethical issue of our, of our digital, you know, economy and, and technological advancement, I, I just think the stakes are too high. We all need to be involved and we need to all be all in, right? And and that uh, 
people uh, and our young people need a whole new set of uh, you know knowledge education experiences the experiential learning that we're going to be creating in the digital workforce programs right that's what they need they need hands on they need to work with engineers and you know uh, utility lord like in 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 my field i was a community development you know and i i started learning about the issue of the digital divide from the lowest income communities in our country and I could have said, well, no, I'm, that's not part of community development, but it is, you know, it, that people were telling me it is, right? And it matters to the economy. And then I started researching, right? So utility lawyers and, and uh, engineers became part of my colleagues in in community development, right? So we have to constantly change and grow. And, and that's, you know, the nature of the digital economy of the fourth industrial revolution. And it's, it's, it's critical, right? If we're going to be able to put humans first, and and create what we want to create and use technology for good uh, to the maximum that we can. You know, there 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 are already examples of you know using technology for harm, right? But how do we create great digital citizens that are equipped, right? And young people know how to navigate the internet. They know what's happening behind the scenes. They know how big data is collected. They know the dangers and you know internet safety and security build all that into our education and we have the chance to create that right now with the digital equity grants and and programs and and we're creating that in south texas and the mississippi delta very holistic programs right and looking at our society broadly and saying oh no the mothers in the colonias yeah they can understand broadband networks and guess what? If Jordana Barton Garcia can, anybody can. <laughs> no, I, you know, of course, I had to learn, right? That right. Uh, not, I'm not an engineer, but I had to learn enough to know what what makes good policy. What are the best practices? What, you know? So, so yes, people can and and need to know, right? All of these parts of of technology and and the digital economy, and we will be a stronger country for it, and we will survive. The challenges that are that are so um, evident, you know, before us, and our young people from some of the the persistent poverty regions. Guess what? They're going to solve uh, climate change challenges, right? They're going to solve some of our biggest challenges with entrepreneurial ideas because they're going to have access to the internet. They're going to be uh, knowledgeable about how to navigate, right, and and be safe and secure and create great policies. So. That's the world that I am am uh, hoping to create, and I, I want it to be equitable, right? I want diverse companies to be owning the assets of the digital economy and the big data, right? <laughs> and right. I want uh, people of color, uh, low-income people, rural people, right? All people to be at the table equally to be able to make policy and and uh, you know products and so forth. Uh, that are going to determine the fate of humanity and the the our ability to um, create more opportunity and shared prosperity and and um, and a strong a strong country and economy. So that's why I'm committed to it. I think it's uh it's it's actually you know people always talk about oh we're at an inflection point. Guess what? <laughs> we are at an, in an inflection point, and I I think we all need to be involved, and that's. IAJA, I'm hoping for the very best, right, in the federal funding, and I'm going to work uh, very, you know, as hard as I can with all of my energy, and, and I'm not alone, right, it's all these hundreds and thousands of people I'm working with, right, 
uh, local communities uh, to think not with scarcity, but understanding what we can achieve, what we can have when we partner, right? Because when you partner, work together the way some of the co-ops and and and, uh, and small ISPs are partnering with communities and community-based organizations. When I see that commitment coming together, that synergy, that is wealth. That is, we're mm. not, you know, if we, if we use all, all that we have, all the assets that we have and stop thinking in silos and that we have this, this, uh, this finite pie to divide up and then who gets what, whatever. No, actually, we can increase the size of the pie by partnering together and creating those synergies. And, and that's, that's us in the United States and in the world at our best as human beings. We need something that's uh, bigger than the sum of the parts. And so that's what I'm committed to. And, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's my hope uh, for, for our, our future. Beautifully said and uh, inspiring insights all the way around. So uh, Jordana, thank you for, thank you for joining me on this episode. And uh, I think, I think we covered a lot of really good and important ground there. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Great to be here. She is Jordana Barton Garcia uh, with Connect Humanity and with Barton Garcia Advisors. Uh, I'm your host, Andy Johns. Thank you for listening on this episode. We hope you will tune in to the next episode of Rural Broadband Today. Rural Broadband Today is brought to you by Pioneer Utility Resources. Rural Broadband Today is engineered by Lucas Smith of Lucky Sound Studio.